title of today's message is Anatomy of a Betrayal, and we're going to be in John chapter 13. If you want to open up your Bibles to that or flip out your cell phone or however you read the Word of God, we're going to be in John chapter 13 today. One of the most famous betrayals in history that we all probably have heard about is the betrayal of Julius Caesar. If you don't know who that is, Julius Caesar was a general and a politician in Rome during its years of being a republic prior to becoming an empire. He's responsible for conquering parts of Germania, France, and even had a few excursions into the British Isle. After a great deal of drama and political intrigue and strife that was going on in Rome at the time, Caesar committed the one thing that a general was never supposed to do, and he led his army into Rome and seized power from the person who was in charge at that time named Pompey, and he set himself up as a dictator of Rome. Initially, this wasn't a normal dictatorship. Generally, when somebody declares himself a dictator, they do it for life, and they are the ultimate power within that country. But Julius Caesar was initially one that was elected on a yearly basis. So he wasn't quite the same level of dictator that we have or are familiar with today. He was more of kind of a, a president with almost ultimate power. And initially, this move was very popular with the people. Julius Caesar himself was a much-loved figure. Everybody really liked him and and appreciated everything he did for the Republic, and his military exploits were famous amongst the kids, and and so he was a very popular figure. And for the most part, initially, his rule was very fair, balanced, and just. But then Caesar got the Roman Senate to declare him dictator for life. Well, this was very concerning to the other side of the aisle of senators. They had kind of different political parties back then, too. And there were a political party who valued freedom that Rome represented. Rome was represented, or excuse me, set up much like America was, a representative constitutional republic, in which they had a democratically elected government. So they were very frightened of the possibility of Caesar being elected dictator for life, that they could never remove him, he was never going to be voted on again. So these senators formed a conspiracy that ended up assassinating Caesar on March 15th, 44 BC. The Ides of March, if you remember your high school reading assignments. Tammy's growing hives right now, she hates Shakespeare. (laughs) You don't like poetry, okay. Well, these events were immortalized in William Shakespeare's play that actually I just reread recently. And as I read the account of this assassination, I read upon it from Shakespeare's uh, play, and I also read some historical things about it. And they said that during the assassination, Julius Caesar, being a former general and soldier before he became a politician, was actually holding back the assassins. He was fighting very ferociously against them until he saw the face of one of his best friends, Brutus. When he saw the face of his best friend, it is said that he cast his cloak over his face and allowed the knives to fall. And he said the famous words, et tu, Brute. The Latin that means, even you, Brutus? Caesar couldn't face betrayal of one of his closest friends, and he let those daggers kill him. 
And I was reminded of this incident this week as I was reading about Judas Iscariot. Now, when I say the name Judas Iscariot, what immediately comes to your mind? Just a revulsion. He's a traitor. He's a scumbag. He's the one who betrayed Jesus to death. All traitors are evil, aren't they? We, we don't think with fondness upon Benedict Arnold, do we? The person who betrayed America to the British in the Revolutionary War. If you remember Richard Reed, the infamous shoe bomber, he, the American who defected to the Taliban and then came back and tried to blow up a plane with, with explosives in his shoe. How about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? Probably most of you don't know who that was, but they're the ones who sold the secrets of the nuclear bomb to the Soviet Union. Had they not done that, the Cold War would never have happened. The U.S. would have been so far ahead of the Soviet Union militarily, the Cold War would not have happened. Because of their betrayal, we had 40 years of a Cold War where people were put in harm's way and, and wars fought in proxy against the Soviet Union and America because of these two people. Vietnam wouldn't have happened if the Korea wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for these two people. But even considering all the infamy of the people that we just mentioned, Judas's betrayal of Jesus dwarfs them. Judas betrayed God himself for his own selfish gain. But was that the only reason? Was that the primary reason that Judas did it? Let's read this morning from John's account of the moment that Judas actually decides to go through with his betrayal of Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 21. After this, he said, after he said this, Jesus was very troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he met. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, do what you are about to do, and do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or, or go give something to the poor. And as Judas has taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Father, I just ask, Lord, that as we study from one of the most infamous acts in all of human history, that we would understand exactly what happened, the motivations that Judas had, and how it reflects upon us today. Father, be with us as we, as we dig into this. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I was told at a fire department meeting that the Trempeleau County Coroner was going to be contacting me to come and be one of the deputy coroners. I haven't decided if I'm, she hasn't contacted me yet. I haven't decided if I was even going to do it. It's going to be very, very part-time, just covering her on vacation. But 
I would, if I take it, I would be assisting her and the sheriff's department with doing death investigations and ordering forensic autopsies and things like that. Kind of like CSI, Trumpalo County. Maybe I'll be on TV one day. But that kind of job appeals to me because I kind of like figuring things out. I like poking and investigating and looking under the surface for things and how they really happened. And I want to do this this morning with Judas. I want to go behind the, under the surface that we have all heard about, that he was some type of scum and sleazy guy that portrayed Jesus and see if we can discover the full anatomy of his betrayal. So we're going to be crime scene investigators this morning, investigating what led up to the most famous murder in all of history, the murder of Jesus Christ. We're going to study it, and we're going to do it by looking at the man behind it. So let's look at some of the background information that we have to consider about Judas before he left the upper room that night to meet with the Jewish authorities. So let's look at the background information. Let's look at Judas and how he came to this um, spot in history. First of all, how did Judas get in to the inner circle of disciples? How did he get there? Well, he was called. He was called to be a disciple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the calling of Judas to be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now think about that for a moment. I mean, from the moment Jesus laid eyes on Judas, he knew that this man was going to betray him. He knew it. Not only that, from eternity past, Jesus in heaven knew the name of the man who was going to betray him. And yet he still allowed him to be born. He still allowed him to grow up and to cross paths with Jesus one day. And Jesus called him knowing full well that Judas was going to betray him and cause him a great deal of pain. And that's mind-blowing when you consider that Jesus actually called Judas into the ministry when you consider this, that you and I are called by Jesus to a life of mission that serves the kingdom of God. We're just as called as Judas was. God called you even knowing you were going to fail, even when you were going to treat his gift with contempt, and even when you would turn your back on it for a time, he still called you just as he called Judas into the life of ministry. And there's no record that Judas was treated any differently than the other disciples. It wasn't like the other 11 disciples got to sit around the campfire and they kicked Judas out into the outer darkness where he was out there pulling the heads off of small animals or, or doing something really sleazy or anything. He was part of the, of the 12 disciples. He wasn't this creepy outcast. In fact, he was a vital part of the team. Judas was the treasurer of the first church of Jesus. There is nothing in the Gospels that indicate that he was ever under any suspicion for bad money handling or stealing money until after he died. In fact, when Judas leaves the upper room, it is assumed by the other disciples that Jesus is sending one of the most trusted people on a vital errand. Maybe it was to give money to the poor, or maybe it was going to be part of this new religious ceremony that they just learned called communion that, that the new church would practice. After you do this, you go out and give alms and, and offerings to the poor. Maybe it was something like that. To them, it made perfect sense that Judas was the one that got to go and do this. 
because he was one of the most trusted disciples. And this is an important point. At several points before the crucifixion, Jesus said that someone was going to betray him. Several times. It wasn't like 11 heads then turned and looked at Judas. He was never under suspicion as being the one. He was never that go-to person that, oh, somebody's going to betray Jesus. It's going to be Judas. They never had that thought cross his mind. In fact, you also have to consider that Judas was served communion at the Last Supper. Think about that. That the first communion ever done was served to Judas along to, with everyone else. And I never really thought about that prior to, to studying for this message, but Judas or Jesus served first communion to Judas as well as other disciples. And in fact, Jesus served Judas twice, if you think about it. Once for the group and once right before Judas leaves to betray him. The first time, Jesus serves him the bread representing his body in communion and showing him that he is offering his body as a sacrifice for Judas's sin. The second time, he dipped that bread into the cup. Most commentators believe that, that that cup or that dipping thing was wine. So he took the symbol of his broken body and dipped it into wine and gave it to Judas. So think about it, bread soaked with wine, indicating what was going to happen if Judas goes through with this. That his body would be wrecked, broken, and covered in red if Judas continued on his, on his way of what he was about to do. Judas had that final chance to repent to Jesus right there. But Judas left anyway. And that's when Satan entered into him. So after being called, after being trusted, and after being served, why did Judas betray Jesus? Why? What were his motivations? Obviously, this was part of the plan of salvation for Judas to betray Jesus. That's the first and primary and theologically correct reason that it happened. But as crime scene investigators, we have to discover the motive of the person because the motive is a key fact in proving the guilt of a suspect. So we need to under, uncover some of these details. So let's look a little deeper into what Judas's motivations might have been. When I was in the U.S. Army, I attended a seminar about people who defect to the United States, particularly at that time, Soviet people. And the intelligence part person who gave the briefing said that people betray their native country for one of three reasons. They've increased it to five, but these were the three that we learned. It was money. They did it to get money, to be paid off to, you know, people would come to America, the CIA would set them up, give them a around. Thirty to $50,000 a year, buy them a house, and they would live you know, in secret in exchange for what they know, and the United States government would support them for the rest of their lives. Some of them did it out of ego. It's fun to be a spy. You get to kind of sneak around and do all kinds of spy stuff, and, and people get kind of a rush out of that. The other one is conscience. They understand that, that the, what they are betraying is so evil that they have to bring a stop to it. And so they do it because of conscience. And all these have several different sub-factors, sub but we're going to focus on these three factors. Because people betray people for many of these same reasons. 
So let's apply that idea to Judas. Number one, once I figure out where my page went. There it is. Money or greed. Judas was known as one of the most greedy disciples. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver would be about two or three months common laborers' wages in Jesus' day. So it was a nice chunk of change. And we all know from the Gospels that Judas was very greedy. But it was probably a very small factor. It probably was. I don't think it was the real reason. Because Judas, if he was the treasurer, meant that he was probably one of the more educated and independently wealthy of the disciples. So 30 pieces of silver would be a fairly small sum to him. It would be like what most of us carry in cash today on our person. And the ironic thing is that this price that was paid for Jesus is the exact price or cost of what it was to redeem a slave. If you wanted to go and buy a slave from somebody or set a slave free or a slave wanted to buy their own freedom, they would cost them 30 pieces of silver. In essence, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver to identify with humanity as being a slave to sin, that he was going to buy them back, kind of buy them back from that life of sin, and he would give us freedom through his suffering, death, and resurrection. So if it wasn't just money and greed, then was it ego? Was it jealousy? Was Judas jealous of Peter, James, and John, in particular, their relationship with Jesus, because they were the inner three? If Jesus was so trusted that he handled the money, and yet he never got to be one of the inner circle, was this his motivation? Remember, within the same week, James and John got their mother to ask Jesus for a favor. You remember this story. That when he came into his kingdom, that James and John would sit on thrones to his right or left. And that this request, this request somehow became public. And the Bible says that the other disciples were very indignant with James and John. It's like, well, you think? That's not the best way to, to endure yourself to your friends. Hey, can you promote me above all these other jokers? That's probably one of the biggest under, understatements of the Bible. The disciples were indignant. Yeah? Do I think that this was part of the motive for his betrayal? I think partially. It might have been something of his ego, something of jealousy. And I think it roots in the last possibility, and that is conscience. And conscience, in this case, manifested itself in Jewish nationalism. Did Judas betray Jesus to try to save his country? Did Judas think he was doing Jesus a favor by pushing him into seizing power in Jerusalem, by having the chief priest come and try to arrest him? If that happened, if, if Jesus was pushed into power, it would eventually lead to Rome being driven out and Israel restored to its former glory. Remember, this was the first century expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to be. A great military general and king like David was. Every disciple believed that when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he was referring to an earthly kingdom that he would reign and rule over and they would get to be part of that reign and rule. And remember also that Jesus' followers included at least one, if not two, zealots. 
You say, well, who are the Zealots? The Zealots were the freedom fighters within Israel. They were the only people that were actively pursuing a military agenda against Roman rule. And they would do what we would consider acts of terrorism against the Romans of their time. They would do things like hit and run attacks, sneaking into the barracks, quietly killing just one person and allowing everybody else to wake up to a dead person amongst them just to kind of freak everybody out. They would attack small Roman contingents, mutilate their bodies, and leave them by a, the road. They were trying to get Rome to decide to just leave Palestine forever and, and, and give them back their freedom. And I think that this militaristic mindset was central in the mind of several of Jesus' disciples, and it could have included Judas. Judas may have very well thought his betrayal was not really a betrayal. It was simply him getting Jesus to do what Jesus said he was already going to do, and that is bring the kingdom of God to fruition in their lifetime. He just misunderstood what that kingdom was, was going to be. G Judas simply wanted Israel to be great again. It would also explain the kiss of betrayal. A sign that Jesus was doing this, or Judas was doing this for Jesus' own good. It was him saying, Rabbi, I love you, and it's time for you to do what is best for you and for our country, and that is to bring this kin kingdom into fruition that you keep promising us. Was that the motive behind Judas' action that night? I think every one of these considerations factored into Judas's actions that night. But now that we've considered some of the motives, what do we learn from Judas's betrayal that affects us today? We've established the guilt, we've understood the motives. Now let's see what you and I can learn from this betrayal. If one of Jesus's most trusted disciples could betray him, how can you and I ever trust anybody? That's a deep thought on a Sunday morning, isn't it? I say why is because you can trust others, but you can never put your trust in others. Let me explain what that means. Some of us would think that's a very cynical and not very biblical way of thinking, but actually it is. In John 2.24, Jesus is being lauded as this great spiritual leader. Everybody is praising him. Everybody is saying, man, Jesus is a great guy. He's, he's, well, he's the first coming. But he's, he's the best teacher we've ever heard. Everything he says is true. Everything he says brings life to our spirits. But Jesus didn't let it go to his head. And it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to, to them, for he knew all people. And what does this mean? It said that Jesus may trust people, but he never put his trust in them. Let me share what I mean by, from my own life and experience that God showed me several years ago. Most of you knew I grew up in a, in a home life that was a mess. I was very introverted, very socially awkward. I didn't do well in crowds. I didn't make friends very easily. So in an effort to try to uh, fit in, I became very much a people pleaser. I was terrified of having people not like me, terrified of having people disapprove of me. I would do everything I could to put forward a representation of me that people would love and admire. And I worked at it all through high school and I was relatively popular. 
And then one day, because of a series of situations, that facade just crumbled. And all my friends deserted me, and I was left alone. I think it was probably one of the driving forces toward me joining the military. I would be a soldier, and people would have to look up to me then. People would have to say, oh, he's a tough guy. He's, he, he managed to get through basic training, and, and he served in the military, so they would have to admire something about me. But it didn't satisfy that needed me to be admired. It was probably one of the driving forces in pursuing a career as an EMT and paramedic. Everybody loves an EMT and paramedic, but that didn't satisfy either. I got a job as a supervisor in a medical call center where I wanted to be the most popular supervisor. That doesn't work in leadership. And I didn't find any satisfaction in that. I pursued being a firefighter. They're tough. They're admired. Everybody loves a firefighter. I didn't have, find any happiness in that. This whole people-pleasing thing followed me into the ministry. I wanted to be the guy who was always there. Even more than the full-time guys, I wanted to be the guy who was always losing sleep, using vacation time for church, giving a whole bunch of money into the church, being everything I could to be in something that people looked up to. And I still had that secret and inner need to be loved by people. Then a man came to our church, he had a confirmed prophetic ministry, and he would sit down with people and, and tell them, you know, and give them words from the Lord. And this is actually um, somebody that I trusted and my pastor trusted, so I let him speak into my life. And he looked at me, and the first thing he said is, you put too much faith in man. You put way too much credence in what people think about you. He said, your trust isn't in God, it's in man. Period. I've never even, I didn't say one word to this guy and it came out of his mouth. He said, your satisfaction is found in the approval of others and not found in the approval of Christ alone. He said, you can't be in the ministry. You can't be in the ministry with that. He said, if you don't get rid of this, you better just resign the ministry right now. He said, because it's human nature to worship that which gives you satisfaction. And if that is what gives you satisfaction, you'll never be effective in a ministry and you'll be dangerous to people you're ministering to. Talk about a punch in the gut. I mean, that's a gut punch when you hear something like that. But faithful are the wounds of a friend and it was a seminal moment in my life that changed a lot of my perspective and my motivation for doing things. And I tell this story because I think this is a trap that Judas fell into. He wanted position, he wanted wealth, he wanted the recognition. And he would do anything to get it, including betraying his best friend, including a man that he believed was a son of God himself. Second thing it teaches us or asks us is when we are betrayed, how do we react? Every single one of us has been betrayed in our life, some by friends, some by spouses, some by by co-workers, we've all been betrayed at some point. Maybe somebody is spreading gossip about you. Come around the corner and hear the gossip being spread and your friend is laughing about it and adding to it. It hurts a lot, doesn't it, when a friend betrays you? Remember our three reasons for betrayal, money, ego, and conscience. Most of the time, money, or most of the time people betray on a personal level, it's because of ego. They want to be loved and accepted by others. They want to be part of the gang or a member of the cool clique, the beautiful people, whatever you want to call them. 
And sometimes when we are dealing with someone's betrayal, if we are able to, in that moment of pain, take a step back and ask ourselves, why did they do it? Maybe that's something that we need to do because it will be very useful in helping us deal with this situation and showing grace and forgiveness instead of the bitterness and anger and lashing out that we're going to want to do. And the final thing that Judas's betrayal teaches us is this. Consider this in Judas's life. He had the best Bible teacher ever. He had the best and finest example of leadership ever. He had the best and most loving pastor ever. And he still blew it. And this reminds us of this fact. We are all personally accountable before God. Personally accountable. When you stand before God someday, you're not going to be able to point to this radio preacher or there or me or anybody else and say, oh, it's because of them. You're going to stand in judgment by yourself before God. I have some personal accountability for you, but you're not going to be able to point to me to say, it's because he said that. You are all personally accountable before God. The final thing about Judas, and Jennifer, if you could come back up, please. The final thing that I want to close with this morning is that Judas could have repented. Even after Jesus died, even after Jesus went to the cross, even after Jesus was flogged and beaten and, and crucified, he could have repented. He could have cried out to God for mercy. But his final action showed us who he worshipped. He couldn't bear seeing Jesus arrested instead of ascending to the throne. He couldn't bear seeing his own dreams of power and prestige crumble before him. He couldn't bear the thought of that he had betrayed his friend. And his last action on earth showed us who he truly worshipped himself. So I ask you this morning, do any of you see part of yourself in Judas today? Because all of us has betrayed Judas with a kiss at one time or another. All of us have figuratively held the handle or the hammer that drove the nails into his hands and feet. And at some point in our lives, we have all shown that the focus of our worship is really on ourselves and not on God. So let's all rise. Holy Spirit, I just ask, Lord, that you bring to light any dark place in our hearts where we are betraying Jesus in our thoughts, our motivations, or our actions, Lord. Any dark spot that we want to keep far away from you, that we think we've hidden from you. Your word says that those things that are done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops one day. We can't fool you, Lord. So I ask, Father, as we close, that you would just search us and know us. You would point out any wrong way within us so that we may grow in our relationship with you, that we may put our trust fully in you and not ourselves and not in others, but fully in you.